this Advent, we are looking at the redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, last week, we talked about how Scrooge's old partner, Marley, his how that ghost came to Scrooge and tried to convince him, tried to show him that those same people Scrooge was scorning all around him in his everyday life were children of God, just like he was. And now this week, Scrooge gets a visit from the ghost of Christmas past. So at this part in the story, Scrooge is awoken by the second spectral visitor right at the stroke of 1 a.m. And this might be my favorite description of a ghost. This might be my favorite ghost from a physical standpoint because this is just such an interesting spectral visitor. So here, I will just let me read Dickens' description and you'll see what I mean. It was a strange figure, like a child, and yet not so much like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck down to its back, was white as if with age, and yet its face had not a wrinkle on it, but was in the tenderest bloom on its skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if it were to hold uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were, like those upper members, bare. It wore a tunic of purest white, and around its waist was bounded a luxurious belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh holly in its hand, and, in singular contradiction to this wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all of this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in duller moments, the great extinguisher for a cap, which now held under its arm. The voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if instead of being so close to him, if it were at a distance. So I really love how this ghost is described because almost everything about this description is a contradiction. You know, the spirit reminds Scrooge of a child, but, but also of an old man. It had this frere, frere, frail hair of an elderly person, but it also had the facial complexion of youth. Even its voice doesn't really make sense. You know, it's, it's a soft, gentle whisper that sounds like it's coming from a quarter mile away. And I think all these contradictions are a perfect literary description for memory. We often think of memory like we do a movie, right? Like something you can rewind, watch, play from beginning to end. But that's, that's not the case, is it? Think about your earliest memory. What is it? Well, for me, my earliest memory comes from my fifth birthday. I remember sitting on a tire swing at my grandparents' house, just spinning around. I was listening to my Walkman, and I was listening to these little cassette tapes that I called God Tapes. Uh, in fact, they were a series of children's Bible stories by this pastor named Dan Blitzer, who was a ventriloquist. 
So the the tapes were him, Dan, and his ventriloquist dummy Louie, and they would travel to the Bible Storybook Castle and have adventures and hear stories. But for me, I vividly remember getting to the end of a cassette tape. You hear the click of my Walkman, opening it, popping the tape out, pulling it over to flip it over, and noticing that I was listening to cassette number five. And I remember thinking, hey, five. I'm five today. That's cool. That's it. You know, I don't remember anything else from that day. Just this, what, 10, 15 seconds. Just spinning on this tire swing, flipping a tape over, thinking, I'm the same age as this tape number. Cool. I don't remember my birthday. I don't remember cake or presents. I don't even remember going out to the tire swing or leaving the tire swing. Just that little nugget. I think it's interesting how a lot of times with our memories, they're more snapshots than movies. Oftentimes we don't remember what happened before or what happened after. In addition, I think our memories can sometimes play tricks on us. So here's an example of what I mean. <coughs> so we have this nativity. This is a nativity. Hopefully you can see it all. This is a nativity I had all growing up. This I probably got this when I was one or two. Now, what's wrong with this nativity scene? Aside from, obviously, everyone in it being white and this terrifying pink fart cloud emanating from the angel, what's wrong with the picture? The, the wise men shouldn't be there. Right? But no, of course, the, what, the wise men are, are part of the nativity. They're always there, right? Like, what... Christmas pageant, what Christmas play would be complete without adorable kids dressed up as wise men, as wise people? Well, they, they weren't there. If you read the story, it seems like they came through a year, maybe even two years later. This is just another example of how we mix things up, how we think we remember something. And this is an example of a group misremembering something, like an entire collective. I mean, me, I still forget from time to time the wise men weren't actually there. And we read this story at a minimum once a year. So say I've been reading this story once a year since I was 10. That means I've read this story 24 times. And I always miss that connection. I misremember that. So I think these are just examples of how our memory isn't the most trusted thing we have. But what's interesting is how much of how we view ourselves is based off of our memory, is based off of what we think we remember from our past. How much of what you see about yourself today comes from maybe an underinflated negative memory or an overinflated positive memory? Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you overemphasize the negative in your past while completely ignoring positive events. The same thing is true for Scrooge. The Ghost of Christmas Past takes Scrooge through a variety of settings from his past. You know, through ghost magic, teleports him into the past. Now, notice how Dickens describes Scrooge's internal feelings when he is confronted, when he is physically dropped into his childhood school. 
He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Your lip is trembling, said the ghost. And what is that upon your cheek? Scrooge muttered with an unusual catch in his voice that it was simply a pimple and begged the ghost to lead him where he would. Do you recall the way? inquired the spirit. Remember it, cried Scrooge with a fervor. I could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years, observed the ghost. So you see, it was only once Scrooge was thrust magically into the scene itself that he truly remembered it. Until he was physically confronted with these paths again, with this environment again, he was misremembering it. He had forgotten much of it. Now the spirit takes Scrooge on the collection of locations, some of them happy memories, such as his, his first job with Fezziwig, or such as his blooming romance with Belle. Other memories the spirit showed him were not so happy, such as the death of his sister, such as how he had neglected Belle so much that she leaves him forever. But overall, what's the spirit's aim? What's the spirit's goal in showing Scrooge these memories? Is it to make him feel bad for these past mistakes? I, I don't think so. I, I, I hope not. I don't think that would achieve anything. Is it to inflate Scrooge's ego over the good things that are in his past? I, if anyone does not need an ego inflated, I feel like it's Scrooge. But rather, I think the ghost of Christmas past entire mission is to show that Scrooge is not defined by his past. Scrooge's past was not entirely good, and it, but it wasn't entirely bad. It was a mixed bag with no single event determining or dominating how Scrooge should live in the present. This is the same thing for us and something that is so important to us that a very important event in Jesus's life, I think, reflects this same idea. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 4. So here in John 4, Jesus is leaving Galilee, going to Samaria. Excuse me, he's leaving Judea, going to Galilee. And to do so, he is cutting through the land of Samaria. Now we don't have time to go into all the reasons for this, but... Simply put, the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other, to the point that most people making this journey would have gone around Samaria. So it's already kind of unusual that Jesus is cutting straight through Samaria. So I'm going to start reading in verse number 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where are you getting this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? 
and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will, will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me some of this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming back to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. But the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For in fact, you have five. And the one you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. So there's a little bit of a discussion from this point forward. They talk about the proper place and mechanisms of worship. And it, it's cool, interesting stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't fit in with the theme we're talking about today. So for time's sake, I'm going to skip ahead. But I encourage you to read it because there's some really cool stuff in these kind of intervening conversations here. But I'm going to skip to the end of this conversation in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. All right, that last verse is massive. Verse 26. Jesus point blank with no allegory, no parable, no veiled meaning, just straight up tells her he's the Messiah. This is the first time Jesus does this. This is the first person Jesus outright declares his divinity to. And arguably, you, you could craft an argument that this is the only person Jesus just outright declares his divinity to. Because other times, Jesus will use allegory or metaphor, especially when he's talking to the disciples. Or, like when he's talking to Pilate at his trial, he'll say something, you know, he's asked, are you the Messiah? He'll, he'll answer like, it is if you have said. You know, kind of these veiled, like, wait, what, what is he saying? But here, Jesus just matter-of-factly states, I am the Messiah. Do you drink water? Now, on, on the surface, the Samaritan woman doesn't seem like a great fit or the person that Jesus would reveal this massive truth to. Because really, up until this point, Jesus has been pretty kind of cagey about it, not, not wanting to tell people, not kind of like, no, we need to kind of keep this under wraps for a while until the proper time. So why this woman? From a cultural standpoint, her people and Jesus' people don't like each other. Both sides see the other one as traitors, see the other ones as turning their backs on God. On a personal level, the woman herself lied to Jesus and then admitted to not following the law of Moses. But despite all of this, despite the woman's cultural history, despite their personal differences, Jesus chooses her to be the first person to hear about his divinity. Not only that, she has the distinction of being 
the first person to tell other people about Jesus. She fulfills the Great Commission before there is a Great Commission. So right after this interaction, she runs into town and basically starts yelling, telling everyone who will listen to come and see this man. And she implies that she thinks he's the Messiah. Jesus did not see her in terms of her past. Jesus knew that her past did not lock her into something now. Did not fully determine where she could go. And especially, Jesus knew that her past didn't change their relationship. Didn't change her relationship to God. Now, to say that our pasts mean nothing, that, that they don't influence us today, is wrong. I mean, of course they do. Our past can play huge into how we view things, who we are today. But they shouldn't be the single driving force behind our lives. And they shouldn't be the driving force behind our relationship with God. Christ came to earth, died, and was raised again so that we may, might not be defined by our own brokenness by our own faults, but rather that we might be redeemed and so that our grieving, our pain, our brokenness wouldn't be the end of our story. Christ doesn't call us to follow because we're perfect. If that were the case, none of us would be good enough to follow. That's what we talked about last week. But Christ calls us because we can be perfected, but only through the love of God, only through the blood of Christ. And so the second lesson that Scrooge needs to learn on his journey toward redemption is that his past does not need to define him. And the same thing is true for us. Half the time we misremember our past. And when we do remember correctly, it can't, we can't let it lock us into a set, determined future. The blood of Christ has the power to redeem us. No matter what we have done, no matter whether we think we're worthy of this divine gift or not, that is the power of the blood of Christ. That is the power of the love of Christ. The fact that we don't have to be defined by what we've been. What defines us is our relationship with Christ. That is what will determine where we go. Join me as we pray. Lord, we just come before you today so full of joy that you are a God who forgives that you are a God who understands we make mistakes. And you're a God who accepts us and loves us despite of, because of, and everything about those mistakes. You embrace us despite our faults. And so Lord, we just continue to come to you. We just continually ask that we could fall on your feet, that we could 
continue to come before you as humble servants, embracing this amazing gift of salvation, this wonderful gift of forgiveness. And Lord, we just ask that as we move forward from today, that you would go with us, that you would bless us, and that you would keep us safe. In your precious name we pray. Amen.